This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 173 for September 2022, with Dr. Nathaniel Jensen on his book, Traced. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 173 for September 2022. With all of YouTube's faults, they got something right. In early 2021, I had a video suggestion pop up on my YouTube account that was about the new history of the human race. The YouTube algorithm seems to know me pretty well. The video was part of a series that was released by Answers in Genesis in which Ken Ham interviewed this month's guest, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. Nathaniel had been digging into the genetic history of humanity and found some really fascinating things. I started watching and found myself binge-watching the, the entire series, which ended up being around 24 or 25 videos long, at about an hour each. Dr. Jensen holds a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard University. He's been studying the information available about the hum, human genome, and his book Traced gets into some of the fascinating information he's found, which challenges the evolutionary worldview and reflects the history of humanity as described in the book of Genesis. He's found information that reflects the aftermath of the flood and the scattering of humanity around the globe following the Tower of Babel. In this interview, he shares what got him going in his research, what excites him, and what he hopes to find as he continues digging into the data, and how you may be able to help with the research. If you're a man and you have a DNA test done with a service like 23andMe or Ancestry, you may have information that can help him in his continued research. I don't think we talked about where to get the book that is the focus of our discussion, and that was an oversight on my part. So before we start, I'd like to point out that it's available at masterbooks.com, and there's a link to it in the show notes, and it's also available via Amazon. Once again, this episode is available in video format. You can find it at Locals, Rumble, and YouTube. The Rumble version is embedded in the webpage where you'll find the show notes for the episode at echozoe.com slash 173. Along with the embedded video, you'll find an outline of the discussion, additional resources, and related episodes. Just a reminder that video is always secondary to audio, so while it's available, it's nothing fancy. In fact, the battery in the camera pointed at me died about a third of the way through the interview. However, some people prefer to watch rather than listen, so it's available if that's your preference. Look for us on social media. You can find Echo Zoe on Twitter, Truth Social, Gab, Parlor, Getter, and Telegram. You can also find an up-to-date list of all these various websites at echozoe.com slash linktree. I do highly recommend following me at one or more of these sites as it helps to me to get the word out when an episode is posted. Just last month, I had some frustra- frustrating website issues that prevented me from posting the episode when it was ready. And should the problems ever be so big that I can't fix them, I can let people know via social media that a resubscription of the show might be needed. Please also consider joining our Locals page at echozoe.locals.com. 
where we are much more cancel resistant than at the big name, big tech sites. You'll find some exclusive content there. That's also an easy way to support Echozoe Ministries for as little as $2 a month. Financial support is not necessary to be on the Locals page either, so please don't let that deter you. In fact, I'm hearing that across all Locals pages, paid subscribers and supporters only account for roughly 10% of the total user base. So come on over and follow us there, and I'm certain you'll find other Locals communities that you'll like as well. This episode is the second in a pair of episodes that we recorded at Answers in Genesis. Following last month's discussion with Roger Patterson, he walked me up to Nathaniel Jensen's office, introduced us, and then we recorded this episode. My family and I really enjoyed our time at the Creation Museum, and though I've been there four or five times now, we found new and fun things to enjoy. So if you haven't been there, I do recommend it, as well as the Ark Encounter just 45 minutes or so away. Finally, I want to remind everyone about the Christian Podcast community. There are tons of excellent podcasts there. And last month, it also served as a great backup for this show, given the problems I just mentioned in posting. If I can't get the post up at echozoe.com, the show will be posted independently at the Christian Podcast community. You can find the alternate feed, as well as all of the other member shows at christianpodcastcommunity.org. And with that, here's my discussion with Nathaniel. Nathaniel Jensen? Uh, am I pronouncing that right? Jeanson? We say Jeanson just because it's spelled like blue jeans, but I respond to many pronunciations. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't mean to butcher your name. I apologize. <laughs> That's fine. Um, thanks so much for uh, coming on with me. I, I've been fascinated with your stuff for about know, a year and a half, two years now. Uh, we're going to talk about your book a, a bit, Traced. Uh, genetics, why chromosome specifically. Sounds uh, a bit heady, but I found it fascinating. Uh, why don't we start a little bit with like you? Who are you? What's your background? How'd you come to Answers in Genesis? You know, kind of the the thirty thousand foot view. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, heard the gospel at a young age. Said I professed faith. Lived in sin for many years. Most of my teen years, I'd say, enslaved to lust or pornography of one form or another. I mean, my parents were believers, so it's not like they let anything in the house. Mm-hmm. And it's basically pre-internet days, but I'd find ways to fantasize or whatever else and tell myself that it wasn't that bad because it wasn't real pornography, you know. So the depraved mind finds ways to excuse sin and make it less than what it is. And I'd say the uh, the gospel went from being old news to good news. Old news, I just, you know, I'd heard it so long. Mm-hmm. I get it, I believe it. So I said to, oh, this is actually exciting, probably partway through graduate school, trying to wrestle with some of these questions, knowing that saving faith is supposed to produce God that living in it. You know, why is this not working? What am I missing? Type thing. And to see the beauty of holiness and the hope of heaven being to enjoy the glory of God, the holy glory of God, that's, if, if you don't see that, what's the point? In mm-hmm. a sense? And so then to see, okay, this is, to be holy is something attractive and <clears throat> desirable, objectively so, I guess, feel like in today's culture, beauty is often viewed as something subjective in the eye of the beholder. We have these phrases, but scripture seems to teach and says the beauty of holiness and seems to imply, no, this is something objectively so, with some caveats, of course, depending on your theology. Mm-hmm. And I would say the unsafe person can't see it. They have some sense of it. They have a conscience. And even an unbeliever will recognize self-sacrifice of one person on the part of the other is something admirable, desirable. I mean, I, I can still see in my own heart. Yeah. There's ways to 
explain that away and 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 suppress it. I mean, that's what Romans one says: the unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Yeah. There's still ways we still kind of no, no. <laughs> Even and, the believer tries. Yeah, tends to at times. Yeah. yeah, flesh does that as well. It's not as bad as I thought it was, <laughs> or not, not as bad as the Bible says it is, or holiness is not as beautiful as the Bible says it is. Anyway, yeah. thousand excuses. So. Half of the graduate school, and that also led to a change in career thinking. So up to that point, I should also add, I grew up, I guess you could say, in a science medical-type home. My dad was a dentist. My mother was a nurse until she had me, and grew up with an interest in science, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Homeschooled through eighth grade, was taken to Worldview weekend conferences, heard Ken Ham, eighth grade, found my notebook from that sometime back, and went to a Christian high school that was explicitly young earth. Took the chemistry book home for whatever reason. I guess it was nerdy that way. One summer, and uh, didn't know how I wanted to use that or where I wanted to go when I got to the point of decision for college. Just because I'd seen enough blood in my dad's office that I thought, ah, I don't really want any part of that. Yeah. <laughs> and to this day, I still don't like. You know, I look the other way when someone takes my blood. <laughs> and I end up, ironically, after so I went. I did my undergraduate in molecular biology and bioinformatics, which is a mouthful of mouthful technical way of saying studying life at the smallest levels molecular levels so dna rna protein these are you know getting inside the cell and what are the mechanics of what's going on mm-hmm. and then bioinformatics is simply the use of computers to process almost unmanageable amounts of data mm-hmm. i mean today for example we'll get into y chromosome i'm sure one y chromosome sequence if you first of all they you know they compress the file you download it it's almost 10 gigabytes in size you unzip it it's going to be 100 gigabytes in size my hard drive in graduate school was 30 gigabytes (laughs) my dell laptop so you You must be younger than me because my hard drive was one gigabyte (laughs) okay i was in graduate school 2003 2009 42 okay uh it's fun to look back yeah how can you how can you not have computers? Or to put it a different way, I, I sat down one day and thought through, okay, Y chromosome sequence or DNA sequence, your Y chromosome will be about, well, for humans, it's about 60 letters, 60 million DNA letters in size. Wow. The part that we can actually analyze, because there's, there's, there's just weird things about the Y chromosome that with current technology are difficult to assess. So there's about 10 million letters. Still, that's a big chunk. Mm-hmm. How long would it take to kind of take your finger if you were to print out the entire sequence and just kind of go line by line to check it by eye? And it's essentially impossible or impractical to do. That's just just, one person. Yeah. And it's kind of sobering to think that the vast majority of what we discussed, no human has ever laid eyes upon. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't mean, you know, it's so tiny you can't see it. That's true. But what I'm saying is once you extract that data, no one can even look at the data because it's just too much. So you really have to trust your computer code or write your code in such a way that you know it works and produces the results you want. It's, it's still sobering to think about. But anyway, I didn't learn to write code. <laughs> what they told me as an undergraduate was this will allow you to speak to the computer scientists, which I thought that was dumb. Uh-huh. Now in retrospect, I can see the value of this. Uh-huh. And um, trying to sort of uh, remedially learn some of this technique, because a lot of the, even the software now to handle these massive files is not in Windows or these sorts of things that Mm-hmm. I find somewhat intuitive and easy to use. It's in command line and in Linux, or it just—it's just another. It's beyond your layperson level of use. 
So well, I've got a little bit of Linux, so if I can do okay. it, if I can do it, I can assure you, you can do it too. <laughs> and that's my hope. Yeah. Just uh, there's there's a learning curve and a yeah. ramp, and I've got a a local contact here who's a computer guy. We're mm -hmm. going to try to work through this. And next step is for me to get a Mac, which I've long resisted. <laughs> I did too for many years, and then I had a job with one, and now I've had one ever since. Yeah, yeah but. Yeah, seventeen years I've been on a Mac. <laughs> Mac and trash and these sorts of phrases were yeah. ones I was talking yeah. about. Oh, my I used to mock the Mac people. <laughs> yeah, now I am one. <laughs> yeah, now but is it you know OS ten is a Unix platform and so yeah. much of this code then they say you can either operate on right. Mac or you can operate on Linux. Yeah. But no and Windows. that's what attracted me originally was it was post OS ten and I had a little bit of Linux. I'm still not an expert on Linux, but I know a little bit of command line and yeah. it translated well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was the undergraduate, went to graduate school, wanted to work on cancer, and learned a lot. I mean, I didn't use much computer stuff there, mm -hmm. minimal, but it was learned how to do experiments, ask questions, answer them, develop testable hypotheses. I went to Harvard because they had the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and thought there would be ample opportunity to look into cancer questions. Uh, anyway, that was the context then for sort of good news, old news becoming good news. Mm -hmm. And at that time, my goal was, before the good news became, before the old news became good news, the, the goal was, my career goal was to get a PhD, cure cancer, win the Nobel Prize, then have a platform <laughs> to preach the gospel, which in theory is noble. Mm -hmm. In my case, part with the graduate school, I was able to see it was contaminated by selfish ambition. Yep. And Providence has other plans. Yeah, along the way... <laughs> This understanding the good news, long story short, then began to say, well, how can I use my training for perhaps more immediate kingdom impact? I mean, you can you can go have a secular job with a PhD in biology and do great work for the Lord. Mm -hmm. It's just in my case, uh, I began to ask questions about missions or almost took a trip to the Arabian Peninsula as a missionary, perhaps, to explore that possibility, you know, do science to get into the country and perhaps church plant, which didn't work out, and I think grace of God, because... It's I dangerous think, work at that part of the world. It is dangerous. My goal was to be a missionary. Uh, you know, so, so my, my crazy ambitions were simply channeled in a new direction. Mm -hmm. Goal was to be a missionary, have the gift of singleness, and die a martyr. So <laughs> okay. now I'm married with four kids, and <laughs> working at ICR, not in the Arabian Peninsula, but there's, mm -hmm. we can get to that, how it's played out in a very surprising way lately, mm -hmm. in a moment, but... Um, I think looking back, I can say you, you probably need to be gifted pastorally or, I mean, I, I had a lot of ambition, but I think there's certain giftings and skills you probably need to have if you're going to do it in that context. Spiritual maturity you need to have, which I didn't have. I can, yeah. Not that I knew that at the time. Yeah. No one wants to be told that at the time. But I can look back and say, yeah, that would have been disastrous mm -hmm. if I would have gone, plopped into that challenging environment where there's no church support except thousands of miles away back in the States type thing. Yeah. So, anyway, by the time I got to the undergraduate school, didn't know what I was going to do, sent a resume to ICR, Institute for Creation Research, in 2009, thinking, well, maybe this is a way to use my training for more immediate kingdom impact mm -hmm. while I figure out what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> and was there about six years, then came to AIG in 2015, so I guess we're up to seven years here now. Mm -hmm. And so you can say that's about 13 years of doing this experiment of... How can, how can I use my training for more immediate kingdom purposes? And so I'd say I probably used aspects of all of my training. Again, now I'm seeing the great value of being able to speak to the computer scientists mm -hmm. and the need to learn more computer skills, which is ongoing. 
but also the lessons of graduate school in terms of how to design an experiment, how to ask the right questions, find the big questions from the lesser questions. And that was really my first task going to ICR, was mm -hmm. develop a biology research program. So first task for me was, what are the questions that need to be answered? And in the realm of biology was sort of the, the, the parameters. Look, we've done a lot of geology, astronomy, paleontology research. Henry, Henry Morris III was the CEO, and that's what, basically what he said. We've done a lot of this, these disciplines, these fields in terms of research. We want to explore biology more intensely, which was timely because this is, at that time, is, is finally when a lot of these DNA sequences were beginning to be published and become publicly available. So now we have the tools by which to directly investigate this. So found the questions, began to explore it with genetics, and so went running that direction. Replacing Darwin, in a sense, was the, the book form of here's what we found with those investigations, of which the human questions were a subset. And then just because there's so much human data out there, NIH funds it. You know, the previous generation wants to live long, have mm. cures for the disease. And so there's, you know, the, the NIH budget is $60 billion, I think, oh, wow. for this year. So there's, there's massive amounts of money into getting DNA sequence. And of course, the rules are, if it's government funded, it needs to be made available to the taxpayers who fund it. And so someone like me can sit here at my laptop and download the data and analyze it. And that's sort of the last five, seven years or so, oh. investigating the human side of the story intensely. And that's what led to this book, Traced. Mm -hmm. Human DNA is a big surprise. So there's the there's the long and the short of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about the question. What is the question? Oh, the question, the biology questions. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, they're I, I guess it came, they they were journalistic. Mm -hmm. How do species form? So so the big question was the origin of species. I'd say right. the big overarching. What's question. the question you're going after? Oh, for uh, for the human side. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say. And maybe I'll tee it up with the species one because it kind of fl flowed out of that. There was the big origin of species question, Darwin's question, and then the specific ones under it. How do species form? From whom do they form? When do they form? Why did some go extinct? Everything around that. Mm -hmm. And you could ask similar things about humans. Uh, and just to jump ahead, I guess, one of the apologetic frameworks in which I was operating or one of the apologetic goals that I'd say we were trying to achieve was cast in light of what the, <clears throat> our opponents had been saying for years. So having grown up a creationist, this is something that was sort of in the back of my head the whole time, having seen it, having read creationist literature, being taught evolution, because I feel like that's good creationist education. You, you get taught the other side, here's what they say, and here's why we think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's also debate 101. If you're yeah. going to debate someone, you need to know their, their side better than they do. Exactly, yeah. So... In that context, then, one of the main arguments against creation science from the evolutionary community went something like this. They were aware that the creationists had come up with lots of anti-evolutionary arguments. And I'd say there's some pretty airtight ones, mm -hmm. even for people who wouldn't say they're young with creation. So Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, he's professing Catholic, uh, is fine with billions of years of history of the universe, is fine with humans and chimpanzees having a common ancestor but says that mutations, errors in DNA, 
operating in, in combination with natural selection and survival of the fittest to reproduce, he says that can't produce certain structures. And he takes, he takes a page just from Darwin himself, saying this is Darwin's test. We can now explore it at the molecular level, at the cellular level, and it fails. And that book was published, I think, in 96, so here we are, mm-hmm. uh, almost 25 years later. Or what are we? 26 years later. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 96, 2006, 2016. Yeah, so it's been a while. And I've been watching the evolutionists response to this, and they don't have any answer to it. They, they, have, they have about four categories, which are either changing the subject or all, <laughs> yeah. all the typical ways to try to address it without actually engaging his point, which is not his point. He's just taking Darwin's point. own point. And there's, so yeah. I say it's airtight because no one's been able to rebut it. There's strong arguments against evolution. The evolutionists have said that's not enough. I should also add, there's strong arguments for design. Even Richard Dawkins recognizes, I think he defined biology as the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <laughs> of course, he's got those qualifiers, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. Even yeah. though it looks designed, it's not designed, evolution can do it. But he's conceding, it looks designed. That's <laughs> Romans 1, of course. It's yeah. obvious. Trying to explain it away. That's, so evolution is a form of suppressing then yep. what your, what your <laughs> eyes clearly tell you. It looks designed. All that they say is not enough. That's what the evolutionists have said. I'm not saying this. That's what they're saying. Anti-evolutionary arguments, pro-design arguments, not enough. Well, what what does it require? They say it has to be testable predictions, making statements that future experiments can either disprove. That's an interesting standard for how much of their own worldview holds up to that. Yes. So I'd say it's a. It is the standard of science. If you think about gravity, or what gives me confidence that when I sit down in the seat of a Boeing 767 and fly to Europe. It's going to take off. Well, it's because gravity has made predictions. The laws of physics have made predictions. They've been confirmed over and over and over again. So, yeah, I'm just going to sit down. I don't even think about it if we're going to crash. Yeah. Unless there's some sort of crazy weather where then how do you model those <laughs> physics? But in general, we're not sitting here hoping that uh, I wake up and, and, and suddenly the laws of physics have changed or we've missed something. Mm-hmm. But it is a valid question then to say, do the, does the evolutionary model itself meet that gold standard of science. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to see it. And just to give an example, I've, uh, I think I don't have the book here, but I think I had the book at ICR, or they did, in the library, from Sean Carroll. I think it was called Endless Forms Most Beautiful, talking about progress in evolutionary developmental biology. So studying... It, 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 you might think of like Ernst Tackle's drawings about... Uh, embryology recapitulates phylogeny, something like that. It's not quite that, but it's the idea of as humans develop in the womb or animals develop in the womb or whatever it is, as, as, as you go from a, a single cell that's sperm fertilizes egg to birth, mm-hmm. hatching, whatever, how does that show evolution? And of course, they're going to use genetics. They're going to use molecular biology. DNA, RNA comparisons to say, does the does the cellular mechanics that control chicken development have any parallels to humans? So he'd say yes. But he tells this really interesting story that speaks to this idea, does evolution even need its own standard? He quotes Ernst Tackle, not Ernst Tackle, he quotes uh, Ernst Mayer, I think, who was writing in the 1950s, or whatever the date was, it was pre-genetic era. And Mayer was, and maybe someone else, but it it was a prominent evolutionist making a claim, essentially a testable prediction, where he said evolution's been going on for so long, millions of years. When we get DNA sequences, 
we which they hadn't yet, we're never going to find the similarities among these various species because it, it, they've just been mutating for so long. Any, mm -hmm. any previous similarity between the, the development in the common ancestor of humans and chickens it's, is going to have been lost been mutating for millions yeah. of years. And Carol was quoting him saying, you know, this is what we thought. Now we see that one of the, the genes, sections of DNA, that controls eye development in fruit flies or mice. You can also control eye development in humans. And anyway, his point is that there's this, you probably heard the term homology, homo being the same, homo mm -hmm. sapiens, homosexual, same sex. Homology, the study of similarity, sameness among biology. There's evidence for evolution. Darwin, of course, used homology at the anatomical level. So wait a second. Now they're, they're first saying that this was evidence that we shouldn't see the similarities, and then they're saying that when you do see the similarities, that proves evolution? So his, Ernst Mayer, whoever it was back in the 50s, was saying, essentially predicting, based on evolution, hundreds of millions of years of yeah. mutation, you should not see similarities. Carroll was telling that story to say, well, here we are, as an evolutionist, he's writing this. Here we are in the you know, 1990s or the 2000s. The similarities whatever. we didn't expect prove our worldview. And that's textbook now textbook evidence of evolution. So what should have been the falsification of evolution <laughs> is now the textbook evidence of it. And so there's an example of is evolution actually a scientific idea? Does it make predictions well, that we can... it doesn't sound like it's disprovable. Because right. when you do, by their own standard, they just change the standard. So if it can explain everything, because you just keep working and massaging it and doing mm -hmm. all this to twist it to, to fit whatever the data says, it doesn't explain anything. Hmm. It's, it's not a scientific idea. So I think we have evidence to say no, evolution does not meet that standard. And part of what I was pursuing, what I began to pursue then, mm -hmm. when I started at ICR in 2009, was can the creation model in biology come up with testable predictions? So the, or the, to, to put it maybe in more concrete terms, the evolutionist might say, Fine. There's things we can't explain when it comes to the origin of species. There's molecular structures. Michael Behe, we, we can't answer what he's saying. Not that they put it this way. I'm just, sure. let's say, hypothetically. Yep. This is kind of how it would go. We, we can see there's, there's issues for which we don't yet have answers in evolution. And yes, biology gives the appearance of design, but until you come up with something predictable, and here's, here's something concrete, they might say, few recognize this, but let's say they do. They recognize that creationists believe God creates kinds of creatures, not species, kinds of creatures, so not, not a, a lion and a tiger and, a, and an ocelot and a jaguar. Just a big cat. Just, yeah, and, and Noah takes two, two cats, a male and a female, on board the ark of the cat kind, the cat family. Mm -hmm. From those two then speciate after the flood the 30-plus species of cats, large and small, we see today. They'll say, okay, we, we recognize all that, but what predictions does that make? Can you predict for us how many new cat species will form this year, or this decade, or this century? Give us something we can go out into the field and test. Predict for us how fast or slow the house cat's DNA is going to mutate, or the lion's DNA is going to mutate. Just give us something that hasn't been measured yet that your model makes predictions of. Mm -hmm. And until you do, they've said, you have no place at the scientific table. And this has worked its way into federal court decisions. So 1982 was a landmark decision. I think it was uh, it was about the Arkansas Board of Education. I forget the exact title of the, of the lawsuit, but 
at stake was whether or not you could teach creation science in the public school classrooms. And the judge said no, and this was part of his reasoning, because creation science doesn't make test predictions, he says. Mm. And of course, 87, I think, was the Supreme Court decision. It might, might have to do with Louisiana, but it's the same sort of constant drumbeat for 40 years, no testable predictions, yeah. which of course is not true. Well, uh, it also sounds like they're just saying you get to make a prediction. You don't have to be right. You just have to make the prediction. Because they made the prediction that the similarities shouldn't be there in different kinds, different species. You talk about the fruit flies or whatever and the mice and the people. They made a prediction that didn't come true. Yes, I'd say that's that's true to a degree. I think that's in a sense what they're implying. If, if we hold creation science to the evolutionary standard. Right, which of course Which we is can. low. Yeah. Uh, I still think the idea of you need to propose, if you propose science that works, science is pragmatic in a sense, mm -hmm. which you could also then conclude it's a poor way to know the world because yeah. it, its ultimate goal isn't necessarily to know the truth because we don't, we don't have absolute premises from which we can derive conclusions. It's just observations and, well, I think this explanation works, so I'm going to test it. And if it keeps working, I just keep running with it until it stops working. And then mm -hmm. I discard it and I come up with something new. Mm -hmm. And so... <laughs> It, it, it's a powerful way to know the world, but if you want to know absolute things about the world, it's very weak. Yeah. But this is just, this is what we have right now with our ignorance and finiteness, and, and we chase it. So at a minimum, creationists should come up with predictions that can be evaluated, which has been, has been done in geology. The rate project is one example with radiometric dating and such that mm -hmm. precedes me even starting at ICR. <laughs> and... I think Russ Humphreys has made predictions in astronomy, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a list you could come up with which empirically refutes that claim against Christian science. Now we also have biology, mm -hmm. replacing Darwin. Traced itself is, in a sense, a fulfillment of predictions in replacing Darwin. This is a long-winded way of answering that. <laughs> What's the question? So one of the predictions replacing Darwin made, which isn't necessarily unique to me, it's easily derivable. If human history goes back to the flood, because the Bible implies then, Yep. Humanity starts with Adam and Eve, but then they had a bunch of offspring, okay. 16, 1700 years, and then they all got destroyed. So it was a big reset. Yeah, and all that civilization got destroyed, buried under layers of sediment, or just wiped off the face of the earth. And restarts with Noah and his family, so Egypt and Sumer and the Yellow River civilization and the Indus Valley civilization, all that history post-flood. And so you should see that echo in our DNA. Very different for evolution, because they, they stretch out anatomically modern human history over hundreds of thousands of years. And mm -hmm. so Sumer and Egypt and the Yellow River Valley, all that is, is the very tail end of evolutionary history. And so therefore, w when your time scale is this long and you've got just this little tiny piece down here, it, it's almost impossible to find the echoes of that. Anyway, but if, if this is human history and this is post-flood history, it should be boom, 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 boom. You should be able to read it off really easy. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the point of the book Traced. It fulfills the predictions. It makes more... So I'd say creation science is meeting the standards of what evolutionists have demanded and exceeding them. So that's part of the reason for the title replacing Darwin. It's not just we're rebutting him, we're going beyond him, beyond evolution, Darwin just being the placeholder for evolution in whatever form it is today, mm -hmm. and taking the lead in science and traced in the sense isn't primarily an apologetic book, it's primarily a history book because it's working. We're making sense of this, mm -hmm. of the history that we know, using this DNA to make discoveries about the world that we hadn't had access to before. It happens to be one of the most powerful apologetic arguments, I think, in print, because it, it is by showing we can do science and it's succeeding, we're showing this is all wrong that we've been accused of. And 
if this is working so well, why are we even talking about evolution anymore? <laughs> What's the point? Yeah. It's an inferior idea that we can discard and move on from and chase the stuff that's actually working. So in that sense, it's this you know, decades long, it's a refutation of a decades old argument that resets this whole debate, puts the young earth creation science on offense, biblical authority on offense, because that's the framework in which we're interpreting the world, resets the science versus religion debate. In this case, you know, the biblical framework was the key to it. Getting to science that is working yeah. and is exceeding what other people are doing in terms of its ability to, to anticipate what's going to happen next, make predictions, that sort of thing. Again, I go back to gravity, physics, these make predictions that we rely on. That's what good science should be. Mm -hmm. That's where creation science is now, which is remarkable and really is not a testament to any person. I mean, it's a small band of people, ragtag bunch of people who shouldn't be able to make these sorts of discoveries. It's a testament ultimately to. The scripture is true. The world will be behind it. So sometimes it's like shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> because it's there, and but yeah. no one bothers to look for it because, well, we've just rejected it from the start. That's, that's, that's Bible. That's religion. Sorry, we just do science here. Well, you're missing it. You've taken what should be obvious echoes of history, and you, you stretch out that time scale like a rubber band, yep. and now it should be obvious it's kind of lost, and you let go of the rubber band, snaps back into place, and then, then the answers become obvious. Hmm. That's, uh, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked with my own little anecdote here, but on the way down here, I live in uh, Minneapolis area, and we're driving down on uh, Saturday, and uh, one of the things I listen to on the way down here is uh, it's a, a podcast called World's Greatest Con, and he goes through different different con artists, and he did a season on uh, this this World War II plot to, to get Hitler to, to go the wrong direction in the military. But he's always doing a second season, and he's talking about game shows. And he brought up, uh, if you, do you remember um, Press Your Luck? There's uh, uh, no whammies. So the contestants get a board where once they answer a question right, they get a chance at a board where the, the, there's um, a bunch of squares, and the light goes around the different squares and randomly, and each square has a prize. But then there's a whammy, which is like a... A bad guy, you know, and, and you're you're done. It's like the bankrupt on World Fortune, and so you're hoping to hit uh, a prize, and then as long as you keep hitting prizes, you can keep going, and then you press your luck because if you hit a whammy, you lose everything you have built up. Well, there's a guy who was studying it on a VCR back in the early '80s and realized <laughs> that that the pattern that the lights were moving was only there's only five patterns, and there were two squares that never came up with a whammy, so he gets himself on the show. Because he's like, I got this thing gamed out, you know, and figures out, and, and he ends up getting his prize pool up over a hundred thousand dollars, which is in today's dollars over a quarter million dollars, which they say is for a single episode game show is still the standing record that anybody's ever won on a, a game show. But I bring it up because you said like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you've got with this biblical worldview is the is your pattern that nobody else sees. Where he he can see you know on the board and uh, and all you got to do is just hit the button at the right time and, yeah. and you're coming up over and over again. Yeah. And it's not that it's been without challenges. Mm -hmm. There were points in which I was sweating basically trying to figure out human history and what does this mean and he, here's this section of the family tree where these 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 peoples go this way these peoples go that way and I have no idea what what history corresponds to it. Mm -hmm. In most of these cases, it was simply I was ignorant of history. <laughs> and once I well. Last history course I took was in high school, you know, world history, which I realized in retrospect is basically, for probably many of us, 
history of Western civilization. Greek so, and Roman and yeah, history of well, India, history of Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. East Asia, Southeast Asia is. Uh, Central Asia, which plays a huge role, of course. Yeah, well, that's one thing. I, in, in genetics. As I'm reading, you talk a lot about Central Asia. And, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I ran my own DNA based on what you had in the book and found that my DNA line comes from Central Asia, which was a bit of a shock. And uh, I have a lot of questions there. I don't know if they're your, that's your, your area, but um, it, it raises questions historically, not necessarily genetically. But. Yes, yes, and I will say make a pitch to anyone watching, that we are looking for anyone who's taken a DNA test or anyone who wants to participate in future research because we're making testable predictions and chasing them mm -hmm. to, to write into us. So we've got, a, we've got a web form, answersgenesis.org. So our homepage, slash go, G-O, slash traced, just the name of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and this takes you to, well, there's a supplemental table section in the book as well. Appendix 1 gives that same website. But takes you to a page, you can just scroll down, enter your name, email, phone number, we put that there because uh, I've had people from around the globe write in and apparently in Sub-Saharan Africa, phone is better than internet, so <laughs> you put your phone in or email and a message, it goes directly to my inbox and I can correspond and we've about we've had six to seven hundred people wow. respond this way, again from around the globe, a surprising number of Muslims who've been interested. There's just so many questions to keep pursuing, this is just yeah. the tip of the iceberg. So. Yes, very much. Well, I want to get. I, wanna, I definitely want to get into that. I mean, because um, I found the book fascinating, and we haven't even really touched on the meat of of Traced yet. Um, and before that, I went through. You did like a twenty four, twenty five hour long videos with Ken Ham on on much of the same material, and, and I was binge watching all that. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it was shortly after the lockdowns and stuff. I yeah. found it, and I think you'd had most of it done when I started, so I was able to binge, and uh, that's why I was excited to come when I'm coming to Cincinnati. I said I got to get in. And I, I know Roger, so we did an episode with Roger, and and uh, and then Andrew Rappaport set me up with your publicist to get me in here with you, and uh, and I've been excited for better part of a month to come and talk about this because I found it so fascinating and, and I thought you did a great job presenting it. But what's the meat behind Traced now You in in that human history and the DNA that you've kind of set up for us? Yeah. So I say, again, this is first and foremost a history book with these massive apologetic ramifications. Mm -hmm. But history just because it's working. If you have this biblical framework and you go to our DNA and say, can you see the echoes of civilization? You know, all these things we learn about in school, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, and so on. It should be there. You should be able to make sense of it. And that's essentially the point of the book. But the organization of the book is, uh, and, and let me back up a second and, and, and to put it in the context of that 25-part series, which is a little bit, see the pants in a sense. I had drafted a book mm -hmm. prior to COVID hitting, a short little book about just the research at that time. And then COVID hit, lockdowns happened, and so everything goes online and I said well yeah, yep. I've got some of this material and it just kept going where in a sense uh, you know we started with that preliminary material I had which was sort of worked up which in a sense if you have trace book the first couple chapters were things I'd worked up in this early very small booklet in a mm -hmm. sense and uh, but a lot of what's in traced was beginning to be developed in 2020 and then all the more so thereafter next year or so, 12 months. But uh, the way I ended up organizing Traced was to say, 
let's try to find one major civilization from each habitable region or continent, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, Central Asia, Middle East, East Asia, so on, Pacific, Native Americans, mm -hmm. and try to answer the question that I feel like most history books leave out, that my history book left out, and that's not a criticism. I'll explain why in a moment. But it's the question of what happens to the peoples. So if we read about the Roman Empire and the founding of Rome in the 700s BC and the fall of at least the Western Roman Empire in the 400s BC and, of course, the Byzantine, the Eastern Roman Empire with the Ottomans in the 1400s AD. AD. Yeah, 400s AD, sorry, yeah. in the 1400s AD. Yep. What happens before and after? So think about it from a biblical perspective. Put the flood, just for sake of simple math, about 2500 BC, roughly, you know, give or, give or take maybe a few centuries. 700 BC is almost 2,000 years after that. So who did the Romans come from? And whoever they came from, what, what were they doing for 2,000 years? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just hanging out in Europe? I mean, did, did they come from the East? There's just this big blank spot where they just kind of pop into existence, and then they disappear, they're just conquered. A little village on the Tiber. And... Yeah. So, so what, what is the rest of the story of yeah. the peoples themselves? Or to make it personal, someone who is Italian or Italian-American, can they legitimately claim that these great Romans, that great empire of old, those people were legitimately their ancestors? Did they become the modern Italians or did they disappear? Did they become somebody else, most of Europe? History books can't answer this because the tools you need to answer these questions are, number one, either some sort of comprehensive genealogy. And, and I don't mean simply the royal genealogy, because we have some of those. You yeah. can trace the royal house of whatever, England. The and, Caesars into the... Yeah. But we need the, we need the genealogies of the common person. Yeah. To say, the, you know, this, the Roman Empire of whatever it was, 30 million people, what happened to them? We don't have that, of course. So the other way you can try to answer this question is with... DNA, which of course we haven't had. You know, DNA isn't established as the substance of heredity until the 1950s, mm -hmm. so you can't go answering these questions prior to then. You don't have the human DNA sequence, which is the most relevant one here, until the early, uh, what is it, 2000s, I think, if I remember my timeline right. Yeah, Yeah, I seem to remember the, the announcement of the full sequencing was around 2000, 2001. Yes, I'm thinking it was. It I was, was watching it was, a it was tech Clinton. show. It was Clinton, so maybe it was the early '90s. Early 2000. Okay, because uh, I I was watching a tech show. I'm not a believer by any stretch. In fact, the guy's quite hostile to believers. Yeah, I still kind of follow the guy, but for the tech side, not for yeah. the worldview side. And I remember it was I'd been saved in '99. I was in the last the last year of college, so it was 2000 2001. And I remember him coming on and saying, um, oh, we got the DNA sequence. And it okay. disproves those creationists. And yes. I, had okay. a, I was only a year a believer. And so I had a little crisis of faith for a moment. That okay. How would people say that? Of course, I quickly just got over it and thought, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> You're right. Now, now that rings a bell for me, too, because I remember being in lab. So I've been as an undergraduate, which was my undergraduate was 99 to 2003. Mm -hmm. And my... And I got into a lab, at least it would have been at least 2000, I think, by the time I got into the lab, I was there for three years. My principal investigator coming in with handing out papers to the graduate students. Human genome sequence, boom, boom, boom. So, mm -hmm. yes, I have, maybe it was the end of the Clinton years then, but uh, Francis yeah, Collins, Bush was Craig elected in, okay. in 2000, so he didn't take office until 2001. Okay. So, yeah. So, 
Very yeah. recent. Yeah. And then uh, what also is shown in the book is most of our DNA is a, is a rather poor tool to go back to even history to answer that question of peoples because of the two-edged sword of, of basic biology. You get DNA from both parents, great. Yeah. Now you get both sides of your family tree. But that also means you're 50% of each parent, they're 50% of each parent, yep. and now I'm back you go, so I'm 25% genetically grandparent. Yep. 12.5% uh, great-grandparent. And so boom, 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 that percentage drops off real fast. And you could say practically then, the dirty little secret of most genetic testing companies is, they're not going to tell you much more than what you already know from your basic family tree. Because how many of us can go back to grandparents, great-grandparents? Right. Yep. I think my dad has gone back to maybe the third rate or something on, on one of our sides. Yep. And that test is, is not going to take you back hardly further than that with any sort of reliability. So why is there this whole book then on human history? The Y chromosome, and I should say there's, there's actually two types of DNA that get inherited from only one side. So in this case, then, if, if it's from dad, you don't have mom's DNA diluting the genetic signal. If it's from mom, you don't have dad's diluting her genetic signal. Mm -hmm. Mitochondrial DNA comes from mom for reasons nobody knows why. There's a tremendous amount of statistical noise. And so okay. I've had a lot of people write in saying, hey, can you tell me my history from my mitochondrial DNA? Would love to, I'm sorry, but you know, if you get your mitochondrial DNA, I get my mitochondrial DNA, we compare our sequences, and I say, it looks like we had a common ancestor in the 8500s. Well, this noise is such that, it, it, I'll say, plus or minus a thousand years. Oh. It could be that we had the time of the ancient Greeks, or it could be the time of the Middle Ages. Oh, and that's, that's not, I mean, gap. yeah, that's, that's a gigantic range that tells you very little historical information. Mm -hmm. So I, I it's almost to, sad because we we all have mitochondrial DNA, yeah. but we get it from our mothers. Yes, as opposed to Y chromosome, we're only males. Yes, yes. So the mitochondrial DNA, as far as we can tell, is only through mom because so egg and sperm both have it. But when sperm meets egg, it's the tail of the sperm that has the mitochondria that drops off. Okay, doesn't enter the egg. The head of the sperm does, which has the the vast majority of your DNA. Sure. The egg cell doesn't have any of this breaking up of itself, uh -huh. like the sperm cell does, and so it retains its mitochondrial DNA. There's still some debate over if that's exactly how it works, but that seems to be the case with the Y chromosome. Get into transgender issues. <laughs> Females are XX, males are XY. This biology hasn't changed. Yep. Only males pass on the Y chromosome. So there's no female DNA to dilute it, and there's there's in theory, then, a tool by which to, to measure generations. Now, how can DNA measure, how can DNA reconstruct a family tree? Family trees record ancestry, who you come from. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, you know, apart from DNA, if I just have a written record, this is my mom, this is my dad, this is the name of their parents, and they, so on. And even using those terms has the implicit concept of time. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents yeah. tells you generations. Well, DNA, of course, I think everyone recognizes, records the who, because paternity testing is makes that assumption. Yeah. Who's my daddy? Get your DNA tested, and you can find out who, who that man is. The time element for Y chromosome, so I should add here, the Y chromosome, again, for reasons unknown, has less statistical noise. So if you get your Y chromosome sequence, I get my Y chromosome sequence, and I say we had a common ancestor in the 1400s, plus or minus 100 years maybe. That's fairly precise. That's, better. That's much better than... Yeah. yeah. So we can say this is... Well, let's look in this range of European events, presumably, is where we have a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. I know my family goes back to Europe. Uh, and you can be much more precise. So why can, how can you actually get a time point? Well, 
because we live in a fallen world when the Y chromosome is passed on from fathers to sons, it is copied in sperm stem cells, technically, passed on to sperm, in an imperfect way. And on average, so I mentioned that the, the Y chromosome is about 60 million letters long, only about 10 million letters are oh, actually. Oh, that was just the Y chromosome? Just 16? the Y chromosome. So the, wow. the total DNA sequence, one, one copy of it, let's say from dad or mom, is about 3.2 billion letters. Wow. The other parent supplies the other 3.2 billion letters, mm -hmm. 3.259, whatever the number is currently. <laughs> and the Y chromosome is a small chromosome, small, <laughs> say only 60 million letters long, only 10 60. million accessible. And of that 10 million, about on average, in most lineages, about three mistakes occur per generation. Tiny needle in a haystack, but that's enough then to, to sort of mark the passage of time. You compare my son's Y chromosome to mine, about three differences. You compare my son's Y chromosome to my dad's, their grandfather's, should mm -hmm. be about six Y chromosome differences. And so the, the number of DNA differences marks time. If you compare yours, yours to mine, we count the number of DNA differences. You can kind of divide by three or by six if you think we're in you know, separate branches. Sure. That tells you how many generations ago then we find our common paternal ancestor, you do that around the globe, now you've got a global family tree and you can begin to answer these questions of which part is the Roman branch, which is the Sumerian branch, which is the East Asian branch, the ancient Chinese branch, and so on, mm -hmm. to find out who they came from and then what happened to these people, if they're still there, yeah. maybe there is no Roman signature, <laughs> that's part of the question that this yeah. book tries to answer. And so we go through Egypt for Africa and uh, Rome for Europe and Persia for the Middle East and, and so yeah. on. And what I claim in the book is what we'll find is even though we're looking at just one civilization, because there's so much interconnectedness among the peoples of the globe, you end up telling the story of the whole globe, which itself is kind of, well, I don't want to yeah, run too much of a surprise, but there's a, there's a double meaning there too, because yes, the book explains 99% of the stories of the people on the globe, mm -hmm. but 95% of these stories or branches, you could say on the family tree, have originated in the last 600 years. It's a quirk of how that, human population history yeah. has worked. It's totally non-intuitive. <laughs> yeah. Another way of saying it is you and I have a 95% chance of having the same common ancestor just 600 years ago. Uh, and so the flip side is most of the really interesting stuff that deals with ancient history is buried in the rare lineages, which is why we want more participants, mm -hmm. because statistically mm -hmm. some of these rare lineages will come out. And so, you know, someone watching may have in their DNA the lineage of the mm -hmm. ancient Sumerians, which we haven't found yet, or the Assyrians are and, and on the list goes. So uh, that, that's sort of the big picture. Here's what we're trying to explain, the, the story of peoples, the history of peoples of the globe, how much we can explain so far and how much is, is still left to be done. Lots of predictions that this book holds that we're now pursuing going forward and that I'm really excited to, to find out where it goes. Yeah. Now, I assume when you talk about an average, just, just speaking on average, three uh, mutations in the Y chromosome per generation, it's, it's going to be different mutations. So I have three sons that I don't necessarily have the same three mut mutations. And so, and then my dad had th three brothers. So my cousins, my male cousins and their kids are going to have different three or six, depending on the generational gap uh, differences. Yeah. As best as we can tell, the mutations seem to occur fairly randomly. Now you can, you can do the math and say, okay, we've got 10 million letters of sequence. 8 billion people in the globe almost assume half are men, 4 billion. Mm -hmm. So what's the statistical chance, statistical chance that if, you know, my DNA... Well, what's the commonality then amongst the 4 million men? Like how many of those 10 million letters are identical on all, all 4 billion men? Oh, okay, yes. So I'd say 
99% of us are identical. It's fairly easy then for me to, to, to score differences between my DNA and yours because the vast, you know, mm -hmm. there's only been about 150 generations since Noah. That's okay. just, so know, yeah, 150 times 450 three. Yeah. Mut differences between all men on the planet Earth? On average, among most non-African men, some of the African branches have longer lineages for reasons still unknown. I think it's because mm -hmm. they have some... Reproduce faster? Are they, are they having children younger? We're having children younger? We're having children younger? So you might have four or five generations where the rest of us only have two or three? That's a possibility for... I think it's a real possibility if you think of the maternal line. And the reason I say that is there was UN data from the 1970s okay. showing that African women tended to marry younger or have children younger than non-African. Okay. So there's something that plays a role. It's not explaining the Y side, though. Right. I don't think we saw that same difference among men. Now, it's 1970s, so... Uh, what does that say about it's 50 years ago? 600 years ago. Yeah. I don't know. That's an open question. Mm -hmm. But I think even if you reduce the generation time, if, if male, men and women all marry and have kids younger, there are still branches that are long enough. I don't think you can get enough generations. So I think there's still something in which the DNA mutates faster. And here's my best guess at this point. Again, this, here's a testable prediction. My prediction is that if you measure father-son differences in some of these long primarily African branches, though there's some Caucasians too who belong to them. Someone, one of them who wrote in to us. Yeah, and, uh, yeah that little story of the African-American man who wasn't too excited to hear about a common ancestor. Oh, there was, a, there was an African-American man who belonged to the same branch as me, which is one of the average length branches. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of someone who written in who belonged to one of the really long branches, okay. which I assumed because they're found basically in Southwest Africa and in Sudan. I'd be talking to perhaps an African-American he was pasty light-skinned as I was. <laughs> and so kind of had to get over my initial shock and, oh, okay. But I think what, I think there are rare levels of this long branch in Europe, partly because you've got, when, when the Islamic conquest came up the, out of the Arabian Peninsula and through North Africa to Spain and sat there for several centuries, I think they picked up some of these Sudanese lineages along the okay. way. And you can see sub-branches in here, and I think it's the Sudanese sub-branch. So mm -hmm. my guess is that's how it gets into Europe. And of course, the European migration to the Americas brings it over here. But my guess is, my prediction is, you can measure father's mutation rates in these long branches. See that it goes faster. Why does it go faster? There's already published data for sub-Saharan Africans that they undergo another type of genetic change at a faster rate or more frequently. So this is sort of a side story, deals with a different compartment of DNA, not the Y chromosome, but the DNA we get from both parents. Mm -hmm. And the reason we look like a mix of our parents and really sometimes look more like our grandparents than our parents mm -hmm. is because dad's DNA, he doesn't pass on, you know, so he's got a version from dad, a version from his mom, or his dad, his mom. He doesn't just pass on grandpa's version or grandma's version to me or his, one of his kids, he first mixes and matches the grandpa and grandma versions and passes on a combination of those to me. Mm -hmm. Recombination is the process, this type of genetic change. You're not mutating it where you're changing the letters, you're just kind of swapping versions. Okay. So that I will have from my dad actually a mix of his parents' versions. Same thing for my mom. Mm -hmm. This has been measured, this is a paper in 2011 in the journal Nature, one of the top journals in the world. They compared, I think, Caucasian-Americans, African-Americans, and they found that the African-Americans do more swapping. Okay. They also, it appears, retain in this compartment of DNA more of the original from Adam and Eve. Oh, so that that's interesting. Someone will say, well, you're saying the Y chromosomes are longer, they're more mutant. You can try to go that direction, 
But if you look at this compartment, you'll have to say they're also more original because they look more like Adam and Eve. They or, preserve or Noah more. And, Noah and his wife. They're less inbred yeah. <laughs> than okay. Caucasians. So there's, there's, there's weird stuff however you want to twist it. So I just don't go those directions. Well, that's an interesting that you bring that term up because you haven't mentioned that yet in, in our discussion, but you did in the book about how when you're, when you're going two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, and then 16 and 32, it's, it doesn't just keep fanning out all the way back. It's eventually yeah. got to come back on itself. And you end up having, you know, somewhere in your ancestry that you might have second or third cousins married each other, so they go back to the same person. Yes, and uh, and anyone can do this sort of math, and we've tried to yeah. test this. Well, I, I, I thought that was kind of interesting because I, I did some of my own. When my oldest son, who's 15, was born, I took a, a paternity leave. My wife did her maternity leave, and she went back to work, and then I thought, well, I'll stay home for a couple months and get to know my newborn son. and. Well, babies sleep a lot, so I ended up with a lot of free time, and, and uh, one of the things I did was I thought, I'm going to get into my Jeep, my family tree. And I did notice that, and I don't know how accurate my sources were, but I did notice that back in the you know, several hundred years ago in Norway that I started seeing that some you know fifth great-grandma and fifth great-grandpa had a common ancestor. Yeah, yeah. So, and you and I will likely found, if, if I was able to go beyond my third grandparent level, Mm -hmm. third great-grandparent level, eventually find some connection to you. We try to do this genetically, basically. So just to back up a minute for context, because I have to do this for myself. Uh, I say 600 years ago, we're talking about the 1400s, so just after Black Death ends. And some of the people who've written in, who've done their genealogy, that, that they, one of the guys I talked to said, yeah, it's kind of hard to find records beyond that point, or even mm -hmm. maybe a century before that point. Church records and such, or whatever else you'd consult to document family history. So. I've done my Y chromosome, which would be my dad's Y chromosome then as well, mm -hmm. you know, ex except for three differences. <laughs> On my mother's side, so it's not that ladies are left out of this. Men and women both have to deal with the, well, what about the female side? You just find a male relative. So we had my mother's brother get his mm -hmm. Y chromosome tested. We're hoping we can do my mother's mother's brother, my dad's mother's brother, oh. someone among those, so I sort of fill it out. Yep. And we already found a connection genetically <laughs> between the two lines. So, but, but that's, again, exactly in line with what the math predicts. Hmm. This is, this is and, and just to clarify then, this is not a, if you know your records, therefore you'll probably come together. It's, it doesn't matter if you know anyone in your family tree. It's, the, it's just basic math they of sexual together. reproduction. Yeah. You have two parents instead of one. So those two parents have two parents, which have two, so I, I have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. There's this doubling, exponential doubling, yeah. and it grows way faster than anyone anticipates, so that by the time you get to 1,000 AD, going back 1,000 years, you have more, in theory, ancestors, whatever that is, grandparents, than were people alive on the planet, which can't possibly be true. Yeah. You, you reconcile this apparent mathematical discrepancy, and that's just me. Yeah. From my parents, and so on. You reconcile it by bringing the branches together. You connect yeah. the branches. That lowers the number of ancestors. Yeah. Well, it lowers it by making those ancestors some of the same. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe it's a little weird, but all of us are yeah. really more related to ourselves right, than yeah. we think because the mom and dad, mom and dad's lines are going to come together. They have right. to to make the math work. Well, the answers in Genesis and is you can the question all the time where the, the, the first criticism an unbeliever asks is what? Who who did Cain marry, or who, who yeah. did Abel marry, who yeah. did Seth marry? Yeah, you know they're asking who. Obviously, it was his sister because that's the only option. Yeah, and 
And we look back in like just more recent European history, common people didn't generally leave about a 20 mile radius from where they were born. They would never leave that area. They were just, they were born there, they lived there, they died there. They never left. So that means they have to find their spouse there. And that pool was not only small, but it had always been small. I was talking with one of my German relatives, who I don't think is a professing believer, and talking through some of this math, and his comment to me was kind of like the same thing you were saying, which is these small German towns, you know, you don't need to tell me that there's probably a lot more connections on this family <laughs> tree. We, we kind of all expect that because yeah. you, you just don't go that very, very far from your hometown. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many options. And so, yes, you're going to be marrying relatives. I mean, we're all relatives. Fourth cousin. We go back to Adam and Eve and Noah and his family. Yes, yeah. exactly. But it's just a lot closer than many of us have realized. Yeah. And this is not something unusual. It just, it, it, that's the way it works out mathematically. And again, even to people who have no reason to agree with the creationist view, yeah. kind of concede, yeah, that's just, that's just, huh. that's just Europe for you. Huh. <laughs> well, um, I don't think we've even touched much of the surface of the book, and I'm hoping people will be inspired to read it. I'm going to put links to the show notes, which will be echoesaway.com slash 173, um, to the book, of course, but also the, you know, the YouTube, not only the series, but it's in a playlist, so you can just, I'll put the playlist link and people can watch, but I, I did, because I saw you get excited before we started, I, I, I did run my own Y chromosome, because my wife and I did 23andMe six, five, six years ago, and um, in the book you talk about haplogroups, which we haven't used that word in a discussion yet, but, Yeah. Um, the, these common ancestors on the Y chromosome tree, and uh, you, you described how to do that, how to find that, and so I went on my 23andMe, and I found out that I'm an R1A, and uh, you seemed excited to see that when I walked in and showed you the, the 23andMe. So can we talk a little bit about yeah. that side of what you're doing? Yes, and, and this is probably helpful to talk about some of, the, some of the bigger applications of this. So again, it's primarily a history book to try to trace the history of these civilizations, the, the, the who they came from and what happened to them after the civilization fell politically. Mm -hmm. But all of our stories get caught up in that because they all connect. Yep. You know, I, I, we, we just did the math of if I go through my mother's side, my dad's side, those are going to connect, but that, that applies for every single person. So all of our family trees are going to connect at some point. Me and an African-American, me and a Chinese-American, there's, there's connections that no one anticipates. That's what this book shows. And uh, so, so it gets personal for every person, as, as your results show. And one of the things I put in the back of the book, you've probably seen this, yep. but there, you know, this whole middle section right here, 176 pages or so is the 235 color plates. There's a section in the back for, hey, if you've taken a genetic test, find your haplogroup, which is just the technical term for brand. Mm -hmm. Find your result right here. Tells you which son of Noah. So we can we can see at the at the beginning of this DNA-based Y chromosome male inherited DNA tree, a mirror image of Genesis 10. Yep. Genesis 10 has about 70 names roughly. We don't yet see 70 branches, but we have. 99% of the world's men left to test. So yeah. those are still out there, I think, left to be discovered. That's part of what we're doing. We hope. Yeah. But they well, didn't die off in a black death. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Looking for the lost peoples of the ancient yeah. world. And, and uh, that's another interesting angle is that what you're seeing, you're only seeing the survivors of wars and, and plagues and famines and whatnot. We, only, you know, we yeah. don't have the DNA of those who died. Didn't. Yes. Yes. And this is especially true in the Americas. So mm -hmm. 
as this book gets into history, it gets into so-called prehistory. So the, the pre-Columbian Americas is considered prehistory because it's viewed as not having written records like you do in Europe and the Middle East and such. This research explodes it because we can look at the DNA of Native Americans and it shows that they're not the first ones here. There's, mm -hmm. there's been several settlings. It's been a dynamic place. The natives themselves apparently recorded this. I've got in the book, I talk about the Delaware account of their own origins. I, since the book came out, I found that the Incas themselves talk about them arriving or, or their story starts about the 500s AD, which is exactly when this lineage that I say is the dominant lineage on the Americas comes over from Central Asia. Another prediction that yeah. came true, huh? Uh, yeah, it was really exciting. And yeah. it also implies that there may still be, you know, we know archaeologically the Mayans were here before that time, mm -hmm. the Olmecs were here, if they didn't get totally slaughtered or replaced or whatever die out, there still may be a, a yet undiscovered lineage in the Americas that'll rewrite this history, prehistory. So history, prehistory, you know, biblical history has been confirmed. I should say we've got the line, we can see a clear echo of the line of Abraham, Isaac, I should say Abraham. In the book I say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. I've had enough Muslims write to me that I thought, can I say that it's Isaac instead of Ishmael? I don't know yet, because they're in the same spots. Sure. Where you see these lineages that are clearly Abrahamic are places where Jews and Muslims exist to this day. So, uh, one of the things I'm hoping we can do among the 175 million males or so that are still in the Middle East is look for some of these lineages to be able to figure out, is this Ishmael, is this Isaac, are there some of the lost tribes of Israel, is this... Uh, is this the line of Judah? Anyway, it's clearly Abrahamic, I can say that, because Genesis yeah. 10 gives us the genealogical structure of Shem down through Eber and Peleg, and, and Genesis 11 down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or to Abraham at least, and the rest of Genesis, Isaac and Jacob and such, and his 12 yeah. sons. So that's one of the discoveries of this book as well. And if someone takes a Y chromosome test like you did, yeah. we can then connect that lineage back to a specific son of Noah, so in this case R1A, which is a brother group to R1B, which is what my paternal okay. line is, and I should clarify, because I get caught up in this myself, <laughs> yeah. that's just one sliver of my family line. There's right. it's just the dad's, males, males mom's to... side, and mom's, yep. anyway, there, there's more to that, that that comes into making me, me, but I can say that R1A, R1B both go back to a son of Joktan, who was a descendant of Shem, so we're Semitic in that yep. sense, not Jewish per se, but Semitic through Shem. Uh, and in chapter 13, this book goes through some of the lines of evidence biblically and genetically. In a sense, I, I, in chapters 5 through 12, so two through, 1 through 4, sort of intro and setting up the stage for this is going to be some shocking stuff. So let's make sure you're prepared for it. Some of those yep. numbers, we just, the equations we yeah. just talked about, we run through those. So you know, when I tell you something crazy, it, it actually makes mathematical sense. And then chapter 5 begins with Egypt and Africa and such, and, and yeah. through 12, through the Americas, sort of building branch by branch a case where this is who I think this corresponds to. Then 13 is where we get into, here's what the Bible says about what became of the men in Genesis 10. About half the minute gives us something explicit or implicit, either they kind of stayed here in the Mediterranean, or Asher, son of Shem, became the Assyrians, and you can make those cases. The mm -hmm. other half of the names are ones that the Bible says nothing about. It lists the name in Genesis 10. It relists the name in Chronicles, First Chronicles, whatever it is, and then it says nothing else. My thought was the Bible says very little about the histories in certain places of the globe. There are global statements, for sure. But if you say, does the Bible tell us the dynasty by dynasty history of China? No. Mm. Does it tell us the chieftain by chieftain, reign by reign rule of people in sub-Saharan Africa? No. 
the focus is on, in the Old Testament, Israel and its neighbors, and then yep. the New Testament, Jesus, and of course, the ministry of the apostles, and Paul and such. It has this very Near Eastern Mediterranean focus by design, and so there are other places that it doesn't speak to explicitly, the Americas and such. So my thought was you have names in which the Bible says very little about their fates, just lists the names in Genesis 10. Then you have places in which you don't really have the explicit histories. You match up these two unknowns. Yeah. These guys become candidates for populating these places, and it works out beautifully, just point by point. And even you, you can count off the base of the tree, generation by generation. Here's Shem. Here's his son, Arphaxed. Boom, 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 down to Eber. You can count those off. It's really remarkable. It was at that point that I said, this is where Noah is. I, would, I, would, I had a version of this book in, in February 2021, almost ready to go to press. I hadn't figured this out. We ran into a snafu in March. So in April is, I guess, me. I like to think it's not a midlife crisis. But <laughs> thinking through, you know, what's, I'm, I'm 41 or whatever, turning 41, what I want to accomplish before I die type thing. Mm -hmm. And realized, yes, it's nice to be able to read off people's history within a young earth framework. But if I go to New Guinea and say, hey, I can make sense of your history, within 4,500 years, does it really make that big a difference? Is it, is it relevant to them? If instead it was, your history starts with this guy in Genesis 10, now it's biblically relevant. Yeah. So that's when I went back and said, let's do a concordance search of these names. I know the Hebrew guy. It was really <laughs> simple search. But then, it all, then all the pieces came together. I said, okay, now we can say this is where Noah's in the tree because it lines up and ticks all these boxes for the biblical data. And then when I told it to a a retired Bible translator who had been to New Guinea. I mean, he's Caucasian, but he, he was excited, saying, this is great. Now, he said, one of the, one of the issues, of course, we run into is, you know, if I'm, he, he's the, speaking the mythology of doesn't match. Mythology or... doesn't match, or he says, you know, New Guinea, dark-skinned peoples, and he's coming as light-skinned people. That's a white man's book. What are you bringing this in here for? Mm -hmm. And then he could say, no, no, your story starts here. That's your <laughs> ancestor. And I should say, as a, you know, as a side note, there are a tremendous amount of indigenous histories that line up in this Y chromosome tree. They don't necessarily take you back to a specific sun, but I can say, hey, you, you said you came from this. These people, or you, you cross the Bering Strait, as the Delawares imply at, you know, at this particular date, we can see that echo genetically in your DNA. You're kind of fuzzy back here. You, you, you have an echo of creation, fall, flood, ice age. They yeah. don't give a lot of generation by generation detail. I say, and I, and I can take this match between your history and the Y chromosome tree, and then take the Y chromosome tree to take it back even further to this is where your story starts in Genesis 10. This is where you came from. And uh, one of the things we're doing right now, we've, we formed a Native American study group because there have been a number of Native Americans who responded, seen the video, say, hey, we want, we want to find out who we came from. Yeah. We want to participate. One of the first things we're doing is collecting as many indigenous accounts as we can. It was in this process. Well, I tell you, when I was reading that section, I have, to my knowledge, I have no... Native ancestry. But even that got me thinking, man, I wish I had the time to dig into some of these different people groups and learn their history because it's it's really engaging. It was just a couple weeks ago, I think, I was going through this book on the uh -huh. Incas as we're trying to collect as a group these these accounts. And so I'm, you know, this is just a mainstream source kind of for graduate students if they're going into Peruvian or whatever, archaeology, South American archaeology. And they had a section in here, this is how the discovery came about, <laughs> where uh, I want to read read the here it is the title Incan Incan myths of origin and expansion. Uh, so that's that's the general academic attitude. Yeah, which is sad that that they mostly view indigenous accounts as they're all wrong unless we can find some archaeology to to confirm it. And so they say there's this. Well, at least they're treating them the same way they treat the biblical 
you know, sure. biblical archaeologist. Sure. It is consistent. <laughs> so they, they say, you know, here's here's their traditional Incan king list, 13 kings. And they say, well, archaeology kind of talks about some of these later guys right close to the to the Spanish arrival. But mm -hmm. they, all this stuff is, eh, we don't have to do with it. Fortunately, they reference the source. And I think I have it right here. Yeah. It's by a Spaniard. The translation here, I think, is 1907 into English. Uh, Pedro... Sarmiento de Gamboa, History of the Incas. And I was, I mean, so then I, then I, well, let me look it up, see what they say. <laughs> I didn't know. And this was remarkable on a number of fronts. This, again, this isn't the book because it was just the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was surprised for being, so he, this is, I think, late, late 1500s when he's going to the Incas and asking them, what is your history? Which is where they say there's the 13 kings that is myth mm -hmm. that we don't, we don't treat as serious. This guy goes and talks to, I think, a hundred different Incas. What's your history? Tell me. He reads aloud what he finds to the community. You know, speak now and forever hold your peace. If I've gotten something wrong, speak up so I can correct it. Which I feel, you know, that's, that's a fairly rigorous scientific way yeah. to do it. Let me collect it all. You can publicly Quite criticize fair. it. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is 1500s guy, yeah. which I thought, that's remarkable for that, for that era. <laughs> and then he goes through, the, that's where the 13 rulers come from. And so I was, I was reading through the initial section one evening at home and then kind of skipped over a lot of the middle part, the good chunk of it where it talks about a lot of events during each of these 13 kings' rule mm -hmm. and got to the end where he, where he summarized it and says, yeah, so the Incas who began their, their rule of tyranny in the 500s AD, I thought, wait, what? Where did this come from? And he went to bed, got up the next day, went back through, did he make this up? No. Went back to the section that kind of breezed through. It talks about this guy was this old when he became ruler and king and he ruled for this long and this is when he died and it's very detailed hmm. and this it is all originally oral history or and he and he talks about that as well he says they have an oral history but he says it's it's fairly rigorous where the, the fathers will basically train their sons we're going to practice this until you know it wrote they have of course the kipu system which is that that uh knots on the string uh -huh. which are i think the anthropologists still debate should we consider this literacy or not were they pre-literate because it's not letters it's just numbers but he said they have that as well for helping as a memory device for the numbers that they need to keep track of. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it's very detailed again. Are there elements well, that right. seem that's exaggerated? Remarkable. Yeah. Or, but oral history matches up with the genetic stuff you're finding. Yes. That's and amazing. It, you know, it matches exactly. Like, and they say it begins with four brothers and four sisters. Oh, the three brothers eventually get knocked off. And there's, there's elements where it's like, yeah, he became stone, I thought. I have a feeling you're kind of whitewashing. You may have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> if there's stuff like that, do you throw out the entire account? No. I think there's ways you can plausibly interpret this mm -hmm. and not discard. There's detailed dates. It's not like there's some sort of mathematical pattern where we just invented stuff out of thin air. And it's not like this guy's reading his, his Catholic history into it because he begins sure. with, here's what I think in the 1500s, who they came from, and he cites the Greeks. And, and then when he gets to this section, he calls it like the fables of the Incas. He's clearly dismissive as... Now, we know this isn't true, type thing, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what it is anyways for sake of posterity or whatever, and then and here's this account yeah. that now, well, what, 16, 17, 18, 19, several centuries later, we can, years later. Yeah, we, can, we can get the DNA from these people and say, it, so it's not just that the timing of their arrival in, in Peru matches, because from the DNA, it's, it, mm -hmm. what it implies was there's a migration across the Bering Strait, a rapid dispersal through the Americas, and eventual yeah. replacement of the indigenous peoples which the Delaware say was 10,000 who came across. Small band, and if you're going up and down the Americas, it's going to be small, close-related groups of people. Yeah. Four brothers, four sisters, fits that almost exactly. 
And again, are there stuff that is there stuff that's oh, so probably they're, exaggerated? They're going back to the all of the Americas. To their to their founding. So they'd say we right. Incas came from this set of eight people, four brothers, four Who sisters. Started in Asia. They or, don't talk about that. Oh. Actually let me think here. I think they have there may be an element of a creation account. Okay. In some of these, there's, are there's they going, gaps. I mean, are they going back to that Bering Strait crossing? They don't have that, I don't think. Whether but they, they do say recognize we, it as Bering Strait or, or just, you know. That's a good question. Some kind of great migration. I don't think they have that element like the Delawares do. Okay. They do have, though, we began here in Peru or Cusco or whatever else. Okay. With this guy, and he was this old. And so that's where the clock, in a sense, that's starts. That's where it starts, okay. Uh, but you bring up a good point. What do you do about the gaps? And... All these accounts of gaps. The, the Mayans well, would have been really impressed if they went yes, back that far. Yes. And uh, some Not of that the, this isn't impressive. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things we're trying to work through then is how do you synthesize all these accounts? Because some mm -hmm. are very short, like the uh, the Mayan account, the, the Popol Vuh. It's a P O P O L, one word, and then V U H, second word. Okay. Where they have a section that sounds a lot like Genesis one. There was the gods, I and mean, they have plural gods. I think they create mm -hmm. the world universe and it was dark and there's just there's a lot of man it makes you think of genesis one type thing then there's a section that i don't know what to do with it's about the gods fighting and these two brothers and one gets decapitated and the gods play soccer or whatever or some sort of game with his head and it, it's <laughs> strange i don't know what to do with it and then they get to a section where they talk about uh toyan or, or tula which i've known about for quite some time because the aztecs say we came from the same oh, place okay. place of reeds and no one really has had an answer to what this is. It's an island, they say. Well, Papal Vu says, we came from this place in the east, over the, across the sea, and they say, and we were all of one language. Oh. And we were these seven tribes, or whatever it was, I'm like, this sounds like Babel. I think we finally solved it. And then it talks about the arrival of the, of the first guy, I think, and then, but then it jumps immediately into just a few centuries right before the Spanish arrival. So then, and then I was taken aback. Well, what do you do with this? I think what's going on, and I think this is a principle that generally applies. My guess is there's a lot of information in what's explicitly said, and I think we can infer from that between the lines in a sense, or what's not said. And what I mean is, if much of these cultures were oral, or even if they were written, we know from the Aztecs, I think, when they came in, they basically destroyed the histories of the people prior to them. And this is not anything new. I mean, you can, the Chinese did it when the first accounts of the Qing Dynasty in the 200s BC destroys the accounts of those before. It just, it's, you see it in the Americas today, trying to rewrite history. It's just a common practice of the conquerors who come in and you can get rid of all that. We are the guys in charge. This mm -hmm. is our history. The Aztecs saying we, we, we're part of this great dynasty and that's why we're legitimate. People do this all the time, human nature. <laughs> but uh, when history, get, when a people gets disrupted, I think you can make the case they either lose it. So one of the questions we're trying to pursue now was, was there as great a population collapse in North America or north of the Rio Grande as we have evidence for in Central America and South America? Okay. Even the mainstream sources that say, yeah, there were 26 million people in Central America, 24 million in South America, you know, close to 50 to 60 million total in the Americas right before Europeans arrived, which is close to the total population of Europe. So mm -hmm. lots of people here. And about 90% of them disappear. Those same sources still only put about 4 million north of the Rio Grande. It's, it's this pretty stark hmm. difference. We can talk about why that may be the case, but one of the ways we can try to explore this is with DNA, because there's a smoking gun you can see in DNA of, yeah. of a population collapse. One of the questions we want to answer. And um, anyway, 
if that actually happened, I'm thinking to myself, well, what if you're part of North America? Because we, we, have, we have Iroquois accounts of origins. Uh, the Navajos have an account. I've got a book right here from the Hopis. Anyway, if you're living here, and let's say it's the elders who've been entrusted with preserving your nation's history, and then they get wiped out because this disease runs rampant, smallpox or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And it's the younger generation who either wasn't entrusted with it or they haven't gone through all their lessons. Or there's just massive chaos because the people are dropping dead next to you left and right and you're fleeing to try to get away from it. Yeah. Preserving your history isn't necessarily the highest priority, I'm going to guess. You just want to stay alive. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me at all if you lose chunks. And then once you get reestablished, okay, there's stability. Let's keep track of our history again. So my guess is uh, the Popovu, for whatever reason, I think preserves perhaps some of this distant Genesis memory. I don't know if Toyon is Babel or not, but there's strong hints that maybe it is. <laughs> then there's some sort of disruption, and then it restarts again in the Yucatan Peninsula in maybe the 1300s. Anyway, I, So I, we're still kind of foggy as to the nature of the dispersal at Babel? Like, like we... We don't know exactly who, went where, and how. And I'd say we have a good start biblically, where about half the names in Genesis 10, we've got a sense for where they went. Mm -hmm. But half the names we have, you know, these become candidates for large chunks of the globe, different regions of the globe. In combination with DNA, we can begin to trace this history. Yeah. Something really interesting has arisen since the book that colors this ancient history. And maybe go back and pay more close attention to the early chapters of Genesis, post-Genesis 11. In the book, I talk about one particular branch that's found heavily in South India called haplogroup H, branch H. Okay. And I speculate that maybe this is the original Indians. Perhaps the Dravidian peoples or the peoples of the Indus Valley civilization, one of the cradles of civilization. I began to rethink that. And the reason is, and I don't have yet enough data to publish this per se, you can find an ancient branch of H in Europe. In fact, there is a branch in the book, and one of the diagrams is there's a French individual who's part of this oh. H, which mm -hmm. I just, I, I thought, ah, that's just part of the, you know, the South Asian diaspora now. And just to give an example of the diaspora, one of the major studies of the Y chromosome called the Thousand Genomes Project, they published a paper in 2016 on 1,200 men from mm -hmm. around the globe. They had five South Asian populations, two Indian populations. One was Gujaratis, and the other was Telugu's. The Gujaratis, they sampled from Houston, Texas. Okay. There's an Indian community there. And there's a bunch of people showing up in haplogroup H as they might in, in India. And then there were the Telugus who were living in the UK. So they okay. didn't even go to India to sample the people. <laughs> there's been enough Indians who've dispersed throughout the globe. They just went there. Yeah. So uh, that's well, the background. Well, a million of them. <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking a French individual, probably because they married into some Indian family. Who knows? Sure. Now I'm thinking because there's been others who've come, either, either people who've come forward who of European descent belong to that, or there's enough that's popped up in, in reading or exploring other data sets. I'm like, I think there is this group that has this ancient branch around the time of Abraham, so that this, this rare European branch separates from a generally populous Indian branch, 25% mm -hmm. or so of in modern India belongs to this H. By the time of Abraham, what event in history could explain this ancient link between Europe and then India? I'm looking at the map this way, sorry, I guess I have to reorient it. But, and my guess is the Indo-European the Indo -European peoples who are thought to have been near the north of the Black Sea. Okay. And I talk about them in the book saying, 
a separate branch, I and J, look like the Indo-Europeans. They also separate around the time of Abraham. I becomes a strong European lineage. J becomes a strong Iranian, okay. Middle Eastern lineage. Anyway, uh, looking back, I can even see shortcomings in what I was saying, because I should back up a second. Indo-European is a category for a bunch of different languages that are thought to be related. Mm -hmm. And as a general rule, I'd say to a first approximation, the level of classification we call family for languages is probably a good rule of thumb for what left Babel. So English didn't leave Babel and right, French. Yeah. Those are all part of this larger family called Indo-European. Indo because Sanskrit is part of the same link, and I, I was skeptical That's of that. That's what I thought was interesting, seeing that link between yeah. Europe all the way to India. Yeah, and... and I found it hard to believe until I saw some of the early Sanskrit words and early European words. I'm like, those are very similar. I, I guess it is. I wouldn't have guessed that, but there's some pretty strong links between Europe and ancient Europe, ancient India, as if they came from one people, and, and it's traced, I think, linguistically, perhaps in roughly north of the Black Sea or Ural Mountains area, mm -hmm. somewhere sort of halfway between those two places, and then they separate mm -hmm. and give rise to the Romans and the Greeks and the, the Indo-European Aryan invasion into, into India and such. So I, in the book, I have this other branch that I called Indo-European, and then I, I said H is this because all, all I thought was that it was Indian or South Asian, which I called something else. Well, now we have this link, apparently, to, to ancient Europe. Uh, long story short, H on the family tree comes from Ham. I and J come from Japheth. Okay. And so I have, remember, okay, Japheth seemed to have the smallest footprint in today's... He had the smallest number of... Of descendants. Of ancient branches, okay. In terms of percentage of people today, he's still got a huge chunk. So, third, a third of Europe is I, part of that Japhetic branch. Uh, a huge chunk of the Arabian Peninsula is J1, part of that same Japhetic branch. J2 is all throughout here. Mm -hmm. So, percentage of the globe is still a good chunk. It's not the majority of Europe because of this recent Central Asian migration, and I guess these guys just had more sons. I think analogous to what's going on right now in Europe, where you've got a bunch of Middle Eastern, not Central Asian, but Middle Eastern refugees yeah. who come in. They're mostly Muslim. Muslims have large families. Indigenous Europeans are mostly secular. They mm -hmm. don't get married. They may not have kids. And even secular demographers are saying, if this pattern continues, even without any more influx of refugees, simple fact that they're having more fam more kids, bigger families, there's a, there's a multiplicative discrepancy. So yeah. multiplied over a few generations, you're going to see a huge shift yep. demographically in Europe, where Europe might become an extension of the Middle East <laughs> demographically, based on ancestry, simply because the Europeans aren't having hardly yep. any kids. So I think that's something similar that happened just a few centuries ago, except in this case, the, the origin point was Central Asia came in. I think what probably happened was the Ottomans were... Yeah, that was a real interesting thing. Going back to the R1A and finding out my own ancestry comes from Central Asia, not only Central Asia, but recent Central Asia, yeah. as far as I am concerned, 12 to 1600. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, I, my, my Y chromosome line comes from Norway. So it, it, that was a bit of a shock to find out that yes. my family would go back from such a distant, geographically distant part of the world. Yes, and so one of the opening chapters in the book to try to set people up for this, because I look at you, you look at me, and, and both have Y chromosomes into Central Asia, and we think, yeah, we don't look Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, I'd say you can still kind of see the genetic echoes of this. I think of Melania Trump is from Yugoslavia, and you look at her face, the shape of her eyes, even my wife is kind of, because I've talked about this constantly, mm -hmm. <laughs> this sort of phenomena, you know, 
guessing where people are from based on their faces, facial features. High cheekbones, the shape of her eyes. She's like, she kind of looks like a tall Chinese person, light-skinned mm. Chinese person. She does have these very bit, Asian yeah. features. And sort of the more you go into Eastern Europe, which is where the Mongols were in the mm-hmm. 1200s, you see this sort of morphing into or no, trend towards... Uh, do you think this was Mongol or would this have been Turkish? Or what, what was... My guess is it's still connected to the Ottoman Turks. Uh, one of the challenges with the R1A is... So the map I show in the book where you got, I think, 60% of the Ukrainians who belong to R1A. There's a heavy concentration in Eastern Europe, spills over some into Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Western Europe, though, is dominated by the R1B. So Jensen is a French last name. I'm by, Genetically, I'm part of that French sub-branch of R1B. S116 is what I talk about in the book. And 50 to 70% of Frenchmen belong to this R1B, Western Europe. Uh, anyway... You see that all throughout Europe, it's the, it's the dominant lineage. This Japhetic one is now the minority. Again, I think simply due to differential reproduction, not necessarily political con- conquest. Muslims today in, in Europe are not yeah. politically conquering. They're just having more kids. Yeah. So the timing of the dispersion seems a little bit late for the Mongols. I'm, I, I don't yet know if R1A was resident in Europe and then the Mongols pushed them and kind of sent them fleeing. I think that's what happened with R1B. Just okay. the sub-branches look like the Mongols pushed into Hungary about that time, and so whoever was there... Just kept going. Where they're Stay laying waste to the Hungarian plane. Let's yeah. get out of here. And they disperse in a geographically predictable pattern around, you know, past Vienna where there's a, you know, the Carpathian Mountains are around the, the Hungarian plain. And so how do you escape? Not over the mountains, but through the pass, past Vienna, and then into the Central European plain, down into France, Spain, and so forth, across the English Channel to into the UK and, and British and, and British Isles and Ireland. R1A kind of almost as the mirror image the other direction, and ends up down even into Central Asian India. What I don't know about R1A, what we do know for R1B, is R1B has a bunch of earlier branches that we can kind of map out and, and see it, in a sense, literally walking into Europe from Central Asia. The early oh. branches are there. Later branches in Eastern Europe. Latest branches in Western Europe. You can see this progression with That's time. Cool. <laughs> we don't have that same sort of data, for whatever reason, for R1A. Almost all the branches just rapidly disperse and separate just a few centuries ago. And then it's this long, flat line going back into the past. Why is that? In the book, I don't really answer it because I, I didn't really know. Long story short, which probably even a longer technical discussion, how I've begun to sort of rethink or, or better make sense of deep separation points. And, and maybe back up and just make a, a technical point briefly. Family trees inherently record not just who you come from or the time of when you came from someone. They also record changes in population size. It's kind of the kindergarten point, but technically mm-hmm. at the same time. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So, you know, for my family tree, it's me, and then I've got three boys. Yep. So there's population growth, three branches. But that's true around the globe. And so if you have a representative sample of people around the globe, you can look at how fast or slow their branches come together and get a sense for how big or small the population was or how the population rose and fell. And you can also, so, so there's ancestry, time, population growth, and migrations. That's where it gets a little bit more technical, where normally if you have a, an intermixing population, if it's a stable size, again, this is statistics and math, you, you tend to lose lineages over time. If that population separates for whatever reason, maybe someone comes in and, ah, let's just flee, or they fight and they flee, <laughs> whatever it is. And they stay their same 
constant population sizes. Normally, again, you'd, you'd lose some of these ancient lineages just due to statistical math considerations. Sure. But because they separated and they both continued to exist and survived, you've got a permanent record then genetically of where these branches went their separate ways. So all that to say, when I began to think through all these considerations and the math of given how many people we sampled, how far back can we go in history in terms of population size, and so if we see a branch back here, is it population size or is it migration or both? Long story short, the fact that we have R1A separating from R1B, I think around the time of Christ, if not sooner, my guess is that was okay. probably a migration event, number one. Again, I'm hopping over a bunch of technical <laughs> detail just for sake of time yeah. and simplicity. Oh, I'm over time, but I'm not going to stop okay. yet. <laughs> it's, it's probably an ancient migration event. And then what happened? So they went their separate ways, maybe around the time of Christ. Then what's next? Maybe this is where the population growth comes in. And again, this is all just a model that we can test. Mm -hmm. Long, flat line seems to imply perhaps you know, no subsequent migrations and or a place where there was a constant population size. Or if you were to draw the population growth curve of the survivors, it was flat. Mm -hmm. The Middle East is well known to have about a millennium of just flat growth. You know, it, it does this, yep. but the people who survive the ups and the downs, the ups and the downs, because again, the Mideast has been a hotbed of conflict for millennia. There's just yeah. people constantly going through because there's no geographic barriers to invasion. Mm -hmm. Alexander comes in, then the Persian comes in, then the Turks come in, and it's just on and on it goes. Which, and, and the Black Death comes through. Uh, even after the initial Mongol conquest, you have Tamerlane coming through from Central Asia and, and laying waste, I think, slaughtering 80,000 people in Baghdad. It just, it's a tumultuous place. And so you have population growths and rise and up and down. And so when all is said and done, it effectively becomes flat. It averages out to flat. It just becomes flat because whatever that last dip is, it wipes out enough of the previous growth where it's basically flat for mm -hmm. 1,000, 1,400 years. Wow. And that's kind of how the R1A branch looks from about the time of Christ, just flat until about the 12 to 1600s. And then it starts rapidly growing when the whole world starts growing again, which makes me wonder, was R1A in the Middle East okay. for a long period? And then somehow gets caught up in the Ottomans because they're one of the last people. The Turks are one of the last people to kind of come through here. It's the Seljuk Turks in the 1000 AD. We then are followed by the Mongols who almost kicked them out of the modern Turkey. They survive. They're on the tip. And about the 1300s, I think, is when the, the Ottomans revive, in a sense, and then start expanding back into the Middle East, one direction into the Balkans, the European direction. Okay. And uh, so I wonder if R1A is kind of part of that Ottoman activity and... and either part of the Ottomans or somehow is in that area when the Ottomans go conquering and, and so then disperse as a result of that. I don't know yet. Okay. And what I would love to see, and it, I think it may be out there if we sample enough people, there may be some more of these ancient branches or pre-1200s AD branches that will tell us, okay, yeah, if we sample, if we sample uh, enough Iranians or whatever else, if we sample enough Europeans, wherever, my guess is we'll eventually find some more of these older branches and then the question will be, well, where do we find them? Can we map out? Do we see a migration path for R1A like we do for R1B? That'll help answer the question. But cool. I'm beginning to wonder if it was indeed a migration into the Middle East about the time of Christ or the centuries surrounding it, him. Residence in the Middle East for that long period of time, because that's the smoking gun in a sense of being there. It's one of the few places where it's just flat because it's, it's wild politically. Mm -hmm. And then late in history does this dispersion. So... Uh, R1A, R1B are linked, also linked to R2 and Q, and all those have a Central Asian origin ultimately. But there may be a 
a very complicated story that takes it from Central Asia, perhaps through the Middle East, eventually to Europe, where... So here's one of the things, too, that I was rather shocked about. Well, I guess I, 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 maybe, I'm, uh, maybe I missed something there, but my understanding was that this goes back to about the 1200s, and you're pushing it back to the time of Christ. Oh, I should clarify then. The R1A branch, so if this is the time of Christ, it's basically one long flat line about mm -hmm. the 12 to 1600s, and then it separates. Okay, that's when it, okay. yes. that's when it so, goes into Europe and yes. elsewhere. Okay. That's when you see a European section of the tree, a Central Asian section of the tree, a South Asian section of the tree, and you can find it at sure. decent levels all those different places. I think it got into India via Central Asia. The Mughal Empire was one of the last ones in India before British arrived. And okay. the Mughals were Central, they were Mongols. Mughal yeah. is, a, is the Persian word, I think, for Mongol. They came from the north into India, which is where I think that's that's hotbed okay. for sort of Central Asian activity. And I'm saying, but if you if you say, okay, where, where was R1A before that rapid dispersion? Sure. Trace it back further. That's where I'm trying to So I go into together. Central Asia and then go further back into the Middle East. Oh, let me let me let me clarify this. There's the. So I know in the 12 to 1600s there's this rapid dispersal, uh -huh. probably, perhaps somewhere in Europe and then going outwards. Okay. And then if you go back to the time of Christ, R1A links to R1B, mm -hmm. and those I think were in Central Asia. Okay. The question is what happens between those two time points where you okay. just have this long flat line that I've kind of been scratching my head about for sure. a while, just because there's no data. So what 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 do you do? And mm -hmm. then to realize. Now, there is data, I think, if you know how to interpret it. Long, flat line could be a marker of just flat population, flat population growth. growth yeah. And there's sections of the globe that have it or don't have it. So yeah. Europe kind of does this, and it does not have a flat line. There's, there's more preserved activity, they I guess. They don't have the war history quite as much as the Middle East. It's, it's more plagues. and Maybe what I could say is if the Black Death was more lethal. Okay. In Europe, it's thought to have it, it killed off only a third, <laughs> twenty-five, you know, thirty-three percent of the people. Yeah. So Europe, you know, has this population growth, and then instead of dipping way down, which would then give you a flat line because yeah. you erase all that previous history because you kill off so many of those people effectively because their descendants are gone, mm -hmm. it doesn't dip as far, so you ha still have that echo. Whereas sure. the Middle East has enough yeah. of the final dip that it just erases all that. And effectively, the smoking gun of being in the Middle East is this long, flat line. Whereas Europe, it's not a flat line. It's more nuanced. East mm -hmm. Asia is more nuanced. Sub-Saharan Africa is more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And on it goes. So that's where I've begun to think, how do we connect? Yes, I know in, in the time of Christ, it was connected to R1B, which was Central Asia. And then in the last few centuries, it did this rapid dispersal through Eastern Europe and Central Asia and, and India. But what about between those two time points? That's what I'm still trying to figure out. I'm suspicious perhaps it was in the Middle East, but... Okay. My hope is future research, Tesla predictions, <laughs> yeah. will uncover more of that detail, give us some more branches. They may, they're obviously rare if they still exist, mm -hmm. but my hope is there's enough of them still preserved where you can begin to map out and say, aha, well, these branches we find only in Iran, or these branches we only find in the Caucasus mountain region or in modern Iraq or, or wherever. That's what I'm hoping we'll be able to do. Cool. Well, I've gone way over your time. <laughs> So, Fun thing uh, to talk about for me, though. So. I, 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 like I said, I came in here saying I was excited to talk, and I'm not going to stop you. I find it fascinating, too. Um, so find the, where can people find the book and more, more information on this or help you with your research? Yes, or? yes. So the book, which, again, to me is, is the beginning of something that I hope I can work on for the rest of my life. And even then, we probably won't solve all the answers, <laughs> yeah. but it's fun to chase them. Yeah. And 
again, again, thinking about the fact that the Bible kind of sets up shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can solve a lot of these questions. We're... <laughs> Make history boring again. Instead of being this mystery trying to solve, oh, now it's a bunch of dates and people have to memorize. Who cares? Yeah. Right now, it's it's kind of fun in a sense. Not tongue in cheek, boring. It's yeah. it's important. It just I think many school kids probably like myself like ah memorization of dates and <laughs> dates and times isn't that interesting? But chasing mysteries and solving them is kind of exciting. So we're in the solving the mystery stage. Yeah. And there's a lot of them to do, but you can get this through. Uh, Answers in Genesis, our, our web store, if you call into customer service, you can get it on the, on the publisher. Publisher is Master Books. Okay. So masterbooks.com or .org. Amazon, you know, many of these places sell it. You can get it in this hardcover form, which you're going to have all the charts in the middle. Uh, we sort of pick the lesser of two evils here. <laughs> Instead of putting it throughout the text, we're trying to balance. Well, many need to be in color, and yeah. many are referenced in separate chapters. So do, do we have the reader flipping back through a bunch of different pages, or just keep your finger here in the middle? We thought that might be the easiest. The, the last yeah. are the evils. There's a uh, there's an ebook form where if you get the Kindle version, you can actually hotlink. They, oh, okay. If if you bought it several months ago, they didn't have it up to speed then. Now, sure. if you just updated or whatever, if you bought it previously, if you buy it fresh now on Kindle, you can be reading the text and you just click the link. It'll take you right to it, and then you can click right back to it. Okay. Uh, I don't think the PDF is quite the same. Again, part of the challenge is this. Yeah, I was a little confused with uh, this. The version your uh, publicist sent to me, okay. she sent me a PDF, uh, watermarked, you know, yeah, and whatnot. And I was probably halfway through the. I mean, I was like, I should, not quite halfway through the book. I was, I was maybe a couple chapters before the color plates before I realized, oh, I actually have the color plates. I thought that my yes. version just didn't have yes. the color plates. Yes. So, and, and then had, what I did was I had I I had on my iPad I had the the PDF that I was reading and then I put the book up on my computer so i put the color plates up you know roughly where i was in the book so that as i'm reading i could just scroll to the next page or a couple pages and find that color plate stuff but i ended up with two screens going for a while yes and then and you can even see some of the amazon reviews some of the earlier ebook mm -hmm. purchases oh, the color, color plates aren't there and even had people messaging me on facebook or social media saying where are the color plates well sorry it's <laughs> after chapter 12 i think or 11 whatever it is uh, that must have been about nine before I figured it out. <laughs> okay, okay, yes, and my apologies. Yeah. Uh, and even when I was, re you know, reviewing the, the the markup or before it went to press, I'd I'd, I'd print it all off on paper, mm -hmm. yank out the color plate section, put it here as I'm reading through it. Yeah. Kind of had these two stacks. Yeah, I thought it was just because I got a I got a, a review copy that the publisher okay. sent me. Okay, it wasn't the purchased copy, so I thought. Yeah. Maybe they got left out. But. We also have now, uh, they did this in April. I think it was released maybe about May, an audio version. So a professional oh, reader cool. read through the text. It's an enhanced audio version. I think it's like 16 bucks because you get him reading it. Plus you get, because again, the color plates are such a critical part of it, I mm -hmm. think a PDF download so that you can be listening okay. to it and then have it in front of you. So which obviously is not audio, but yeah. how, do you, cool. how do you read off? <laughs> this circle is you know 60% of the Ukraine and a picture really is a thousand, mm -hmm. worth a thousand words. In this case, so they can get that way, and if, and if people want to participate in future research or they get a result, yeah. like we discussed here, oftentimes twenty three and Me won't give you. This is R one A. They'll give you R dash. Yeah, what did I get? I got R dash marker <laughs> CTS four one seven nine, which I had to go into Google and find a couple other sources that said, yeah, you're R one A. Yeah, so. and so what? Probably half the people who've written in have said, "Is I got my result. What does it mean?" And I can look it up in a table in ten seconds and say, "This is what it means." And here's a brief snippet of your email, which is a lot of fun for me too. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, if you have a question about it, 
if you want to participate in future research, any of these sorts of things related to the book, if you go to answersingenesis.org, that's the homepage, slash go, G-O, slash traced, T-R-A-C-E-D, title mm -hmm. of the book, it'll take you to a section where you just can scroll down on that page and you'll have name, you know, first name, last name, phone, email, and then message, and that just goes straight to my inbox. Cool. And correspond with people that way. It's been cool. a lot of fun. Uh, and I'll put that in the show notes too, so... Okay. That goes away dot com slash one seven three. It's episode one seventy three. Okay. So cool. And uh, I look forward to anyone who wants to correspond that way or participate in future research. Like I said, there's there's been people around the globe. We've done we've done these videos too, I think, which is one of the main ways we've we've gotten mm -hmm. the word out globally. Uh, learned there was an island called Puka Puka <laughs> in the Pacific because there's a guy from Puka Puka who said, "Hey, what's the story of our people? We want to <laughs> cool. know." And we went and looked that up, and uh, you know, Philippines, East, and we're forming study groups too as as, as concentrations of people. Cool. And say we want to find it out. So East Asian study or East Southeast Asian study group. We've got enough Pacific Islanders. I've got a couple of Hawaiians who've contacted me, and I don't talk about Hawaii in the book because there wasn't published data. Oh. So there's. There's really intriguing questions we can begin to answer yeah. now, and uh, does this line up with archaeology when it was settled, and and were there multiple trips between these islands, between Hawaii and uh, some of the French Polynesia and Easter Island and, and and New Zealand and such before Europeans arrived? Because th th these people were remarkable sailors, <laughs> to, to with pre-modern technology, get from yeah, Samoa well, up to was, Hawaii, and that was something I thought was interesting. Was you talked a little bit about Easter Island. And just, yeah. just geographically, I looked up Easter yeah. Island, and uh, you got latitude and longitude. Yeah. The the longitude was right on par with the with about where the Navajo were. Yeah. yeah like the Four Corners, Arizona, yeah. New Mexico, yeah. Colorado. They made it quite far east. Yes. And they're yeah. not they're not building these you know Francis Drake style ships. No. They've got their Polynesian crafts, which are great seaworthy crafts, mm -hmm. and they're navigating by the you know tremendous navigators. Yeah. Not with the with the so-called modern instruments. Yeah. So sextant. <laughs> yeah, which again, if you think they made it that far, why wouldn't they kind of? Yeah, I'm going to go take a week long cruise and visit my <laughs> relatives and some or whatever else. I don't know. Yeah. Genetically, we might be able to find this. So this is what we're exploring. Cool. Well, I'd love to contact you again and maybe in a year and see what you're up to. We'll be glad to. Fascinating for me, but thanks so much and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. That wraps up episode 173. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 173. Come join Echo Zoe Ministries on Locals at echozoe.locals.com, and you can support the ministry there, as well as interact with the community and watch the film Jerusalem's King. And I look forward to seeing you there. As you heard, I would love to have Dr. Jeanson back on to talk about his latest research sometime next year. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask him, assuming we're able to do another episode, please reach out to me via social media, locals, or echozoe.com slash contact, and I would be happy to add it to a future follow-up discussion. Lord willing, we'll be back next month with the October episode of Echo Zoe Radio. 